You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, October 1st, 2020. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ed Harrison, joined shortly by Roger Hurst, our managing editor in the UK. But first, with the stories of the day, Haley Drasman. Hey, Ed. Well, it's the start of a new quarter today, and we're seeing equities edge a bit higher today. This comes as about 830,000 Americans applied for unemployment benefits last week. This number was slightly down than the prior week, and it signals some improvement in the labor market ahead of the election and ahead of the jobs report that is expected to be released tomorrow. You know, we're um, assuming that it'll be around 8.2% unemployment rate. You know, that's going to be a relatively high number going into an American election. You know, one of the highest really in history and um, investors continue to assess this and whether Congress will go forward and passing a stimulus package soon. You know, we're monitoring House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's continued talks with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin about an upcoming stimulus package. You know, the House postponed their vote on a $2.2 trillion stimulus package um, because, you know, uh, Republicans really want to bring down that price tag a little bit to $1.6 trillion. That's coming out of the White House. So we'll continue to monitor that and see its further impact on the markets. Another story we're looking at closely is this rise in SPACs in a red-hot IPO market. You know, this year so far, we're seeing 115 blank check companies raise nearly $43 billion. Recent successes have fueled this frenzy, including Virgin Galactic, DraftKings, Opendoor, and today we're seeing Playboy return to the public market through a SPAC. The storied men's magazine publisher will, will merge with Mountain Crest Acquisition Corp., which will take the Playboy name and trade under the symbol PLBY. SPACs have exploded in popularity this year. Its purpose is to acquire companies and bring them to the publicly traded market. It tends to be a simpler route because purchasers can avoid, you know, the time consumption and the costs that usually are involved in an IPO process. Also, an IPO process tends to be exposed to more market volatility. Um, and I want to read here that in a SPAC, the company sells to the public shares of a company that has no operations. Its owners promise to use the money within two years to buy a private company. And so now we're also seeing the first ETF of SPACs being traded on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol SPAK today. The new fund will track primarily um, shares of companies that are listed on exchanges by merging with SPACs rather than those that held a traditional IPO. Um, it will also track SPACs that have not yet executed on acquisition. So more than 80% of the ETF holdings will uh, focus on the likes of like DraftKings and uh, Virgin Galactic. They'll be made up of, you know, those SPACs and uh, the 20% will go towards blank check companies that continue to hunt for acquisition. So, um, it, you know, it's incredibly interesting to, to hear about this rise of SPACs and blank check companies um, and we'll keep an eye on it. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Haley. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads.
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, Roger, uh, uh, let me just start off with you here today about uh, the, the SPAC ETF. I thought that was kind of interesting and sort of emblematic of where we are right now. What are your, what's your thinking about ETFs for SPACs? Uh, two of the big buzzwords, aren't they, really? I mean, obviously, ETFs have been around for a long time, but they are embedded in the whole world changing towards passive and moving away from active. And SPACs is embedded in the whole, let's pull some money together and start investing in things and kind of, should we be going down the IPO route or should we be going down this route? And the size of the SPACs, I mean, this is a record year for these, these special purpose acquisition companies. And I think we're at 32 billion so far this year. I think the record before that was something like 12 or 13. So it's a big number within the SPAC world. Um, and it, it seems that they're really focusing on some of the sort of unicorn and exciting names out there. Um, so in some ways, these are two buzzwords, but both of them feel like, well, ETFs are not a sign of froth, they're just a sign of um, emblematic of what's been going on in the world as a whole. And these SPACs probably are a little bit of an indication of a little bit of froth that's been building over the summer. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree that uh, it's definitely an indication that uh, we're in a period where you know, passive is king, and uh, we're we're getting into some some frothy times. But overall, what are you thinking about the markets? Like, what's you what's your take uh, of uh, market action today, and what are you focusing on in general? Well, just as we're coming on here, we've seen quite a dramatic move in uh, particularly a few commodities. We've seen copper down four and a half percent. We saw oil down um, at least six percent. So they're big moves, um, but. There's the three points almost every month where I always say, look, you've got to be careful. This is the first day of the month, the last day of the month, and expiry day. And sometimes you get big moves around that. So we've got to watch these just to check that they're not just to do with portfolio rebalancing, but they could be to do with the fact that, as we can see from a lot of other data points, the real economy data points, the rebound has run out of steam in some of the in some cases, has been rolling over. Are we starting to see that in some of these real real economy commodities as well? As I say, first of the month, it could simply be the portfolio repositioning. But let's watch these things because um, it gave us it, they give us some good clues. Copper started its sort of rollover in January of this year, way before everything else. In fact, copper had sort of run out of steam on the downside as everything else started to gain momentum on the downside. So copper is an early warning um, system in some ways. Is it telling us something new? I'm not sure. But if we get some follow through, then I think we have to take that into account and then start looking to see if we get follow through from bond yields to the downside. Yeah, you know, uh, they don't call it Dr. Copper for nothing. And I was thinking to myself, and actually I, I, I tweeted this out earlier today. We're talking now at the close of uh, the European markets. Uh, even just before that, Roger, I was uh, asking people on uh, Twitter and then also on our exchange uh, what people think of what's happening with copper. One of the com and and also with crude oil, one of the comments I made was I'm not really that concerned about crude WTI at thirty eight dollars a barrel. You know, if you get down to the low thirties, then it gets concerning. Then you really have to worry about is this a reflection of uh you know a la a weak end demand? But um, it is a bit worrying in the after the debates. Uh, and and all of this uh, stuff in the U.S. about no stimulus that there's this friction, you know, this this gridlock, if you will, in in the U.S. and that that's driving the markets. And we're not going to be able to know for at least a, a few days. Any thoughts on that at all? Yeah, I think one of the key things with all of this is that you know we don't have to let's say worry until we get to thirty. But what we have to worry about is if the journey towards thirty is beginning today, and that's the key because if you want to position for this and BP, for instance, British Petroleum is at another new low. 
you don't want to get to 30 and think about putting the trades on. You've got to decide whether this is the move to the downside. As I say, at the moment, it's happening in commodities in isolation. We're not seeing bond yields move. We're not seeing a big move in currencies. Equities pulling back a little bit today, but or at least some of the European equities are. The US has been testing some key levels. But the key thing here is, are we going to take out the 36 level, which was the low at the beginning of September, where exactly the first few days of September, where we saw that kind of VAR shock on equities that spilled over into um, other parts of pre people's portfolios? We need to monitor for that because if we're moving from 40 to 30, then that's telling us something relatively profound, given the overall demand of oil, not the price, but overall demand, has not really picked up because all the big users, airlines, et cetera, they've never really got off the ground. When you look at the volume of, of airline footage, of footfall, it still remains very much close to where we were through the midst of all the, the, the problems a few months ago. You know, uh, before we got on, we were talking about various themes that are going on in the market. And uh, one of the things that came out was uh, Julian Brigden's uh, EV, you know, the, ex ex um, the expert view that we did uh, on the platform earlier this week. A lot of people like that. Uh, you like that. Uh, what sort of themes come out of that uh, expert view that you would piggyback on? So the one I, I still like, and we mentioned this last week, and I've talked about this quite a lot on the Refinitiv show that I do, which is that um, you know I don't want to take a necessarily a view on who should win, who will win, and by what amount. What I want to do is, is see if there's anything that I think will be similar. And I think there is one thing, and this is what Julian was talking about, that will be similar regardless of which side won, which side wins, which is that there is going to be more fiscal and more monetary support, still support but not stimulus, but it could become eventually stimulus. But there's going to be more of both from both parties, regardless of who wins. Before then, there's probably unlikely to be anything more apart from QE infinity from the, the Federal Reserve. But in that environment, then you say, OK, well, what are the trades that we can put on now? And where I'm, I'm not sceptical, but where I'm less certain is that on the dollar trade, you'd say Fed does loads more, fiscal side does loads more as well, dollar should go down. But Europe's going to do more. Japan's going to do more. China's going to do more. You know, Europe was squealing at 120 on the euro. So I think that the move for the dollar is still uncertain. And I think it could be a grind lower if it's going to be lower with asymmetric risk to the upside because it could still be the shock impact. But I do think that this is a great setup for precious metals. So these, the weakness that we've seen in precious metals is something that you look to buy into simply because what are they going to do? They're going to do QE. They might do yield curve control, which means that they're going to hold nominal yields where they are. They're going to drive, try and drive inflation up. Real yields could fall further. 10-year real yields at minus 1% could head towards minus 2%. And real yields and gold have been going perfectly in opposite directions. Real yields down, gold up. Now, let's say they're wrong in the consensus for inflation 12 months forward, or at least the, the general consensus that we will get inflation is wrong. Then those real yields might not move. But central banks the world over will do more, and they will try and push it there so that at least one year forward, 10-year forward inflation expectations probably will move. The Fed themselves are buying tips to try and drive expectations of inflation higher. So you're going to get more that should be very, very supportive of precious metals. So precious metals should benefit regardless who comes in. The dollar might go down, but I've got this sneaky suspicion that that's a massive consensus right now. And there are these asymmetric risks to the upside. And also the ECB, they're not going to do much. Well, Europe can't do much on the fiscal side. They've just done that. The ECB will find a way to do more on the monetary side. The Bank of Japan is going to start getting aggressive if it goes through, dollar-yen goes through 100, around about 105. So I just think the precious metals trade is a kind of, nothing's, nothing's nailed on, but it's a sort of win 
regardless who gets into the White House or stays in the White House. So basically a, a perfect hedge either way. And, you know, I don't know if you saw this, but the ECB was talking about the average inflation targeting. Hey, if you guys over there, the Fed, you can do that. We can do that, too. So this speaks to what you're saying. And then when you look at the German CPI numbers that came out, they were pretty, pretty poor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the thing, isn't it? That, you know, we're in this bizarre world in, the, in a way, which is that everybody wants a weaker dollar, but everybody wants their currency to be weaker. So you can't have both. Europe wants its currency weaker, Japan wants its currency weaker, but we don't want a strong dollar because we know that tightens financial conditions, which is why I think to the downside is always going to be this, this kind of battle between all the central banks. And the important thing here, and we saw this in 2014, is that um, when the ECB came into real QE and the Bank of Japan doubled down, then they really moved the dial on the yen and the euro. That's when we had the big dollar surge. Those currencies fell. The point here is it's something Ralph's talked about as well, but it was very clear back then, uh, something I was writing about in my Deutsche Bank days, is that one unit of European or Euro-based or Japanese-based QE is not the same as, as US. A trillion dollars equivalent of yen, a trillion dollars equivalent of Euro QE will have a much bigger impact on those currencies than a trillion dollars of dollar QE. So there's going to be that point where two, a much weaker um, dollar has the problems for European inflation. And we got minus 0.4 on German CPI, it was minus 0.1 expected. They want that to be at 2%, just like the US. The only way they'll get that is if they have the euro at 130. Well, if the euro is at 130, DXY is obviously stronger, dollar stronger, but then that tightens conditions. This is the dilemma for central banks. And the Fed doesn't act in isolation. It might have the biggest firepower, but you've got to think of the Fed versus the combined firepower of everybody else. And I'm not sure that the combined firepower of everybody else, where you know they need less to move the dial more, is not going to be an offsetting factor. So for me, the dollar is still a very, very tricky one. And the dollar is strong against all the emerging market currencies, whereas I think precious metals is much cleaner, much simpler, and never a win-win, and you know, nothing is. But you can see how they will move, every central bank will be in this game trying to weaken their currency. Devalue all currencies, dollar, uh, gold, precious metals must be going higher. You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned emerging markets as you, uh, when you came in there because I have a quote that uh, reminds me of how I'm thinking about this when you when you do that. because it, it goes back to what we were talking about before in terms of commodity prices potentially signaling weakness in the economy. So if you think back to, you know, uh, the aftermath of the great financial crisis, by the time we were in 2010, everyone was talking about beggar thy neighbor. Uh, and a guy, uh, let me give you the quote. He came out with this quote in 2010. Uh, he says, quote, we're in the midst of an international currency war, a general weakening of currency. This threatens us because it takes away our competitiveness, Mr. Mantega said. By uh, publicly asserting the existence of a currency war, Mr. Mantega uh, has admitted what many policymakers have been saying in private, a rising number of countries see a weaker exchange rate as a way to lift their economies. Uh, that's 2010, Guido Montega, who was then um, the, the, um, this, the central bank head or the finance minister of Brazil, currency war, beggar thy neighbor, shrinking pie. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, from what you're saying right now, this is the world that we're living in again. I don't think we've ever left that world. I mean, that's, I mean, this is the, the kind of, what, what happened is that, you know, Japan used to manipulate its currency. They got slapped down. You know, Japan was the old China. They were the threat to kind of the U.S. industrial hegemony, as it were. And obviously that's disappeared since the bubble burst in 89. So the Japanese used to manipulate the currency and they were slapped down for that. So no one can go out there and, 
and actually manipulate the currency. People let the Swiss off because they've been having this avalanche of euros coming their way. So what everybody's done is they've not manipulated their currency directly. They've done it indirectly through QE by printing money to get the currency down rather than going into the FX markets and buying or selling their currency. So has, have, have many countries been doing QE? Yes, they have. Why were they doing that? Well, really, is to get inflation. Where, And this is where inflation is often misrepresented, is that what they did meant was not inflation, but growth, I, gr inflating the economy. What we ended up was inflated asset prices and certain parts of inflation within you know, our own personal experiences. But they wanted to inflate their economies. And instead, what they did is they devalued the cost of capital. The value of capital was, um, was changed. The velocity of money fell. The long-term investment horizon looked like it was terrible because, you know, long-term inflation, um, long-term growth expectations were falling. And so people were thinking, you know, rationally, actually, I get a better return by buying equities than I do by doing um, innovation and investment. So what we got into is one of a downward spiral of lower and lower productivity and growth, but everyone trying to get their currencies weaker through more QE, which destroyed future growth expectations. And here we are. When COVID came, the overall framework was much weaker than it could have been because of 10 years of QE and currency battles by the back door. Right. You know, and so, I mean, I'm thinking you're you're saying reflation instead of inflation. We're getting the inflation, especially of asset prices, but they want reflation of the economy. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, um, one thing that I think is interesting, uh, you've been pointing this out for a while now, is that if you look at other uh, indices outside of the U.S., that they're really not uh, back to their highs that you know these these Fibonacci retracement levels 50 62 are definitely in play and have been in play for some time even though you know the S&P and the uh, the Nasdaq have gone way up uh interestingly if you take away uh, some of the high flyers in the US and now that we've had a correction in the Nasdaq we're back to thinking about those Fibonacci retracement levels you and I we were talking about this uh those levels I would say in the uh, March and April timeframe. Um, how, how are you thinking about that now in the October timeframe? So very sort of similar way. I mean, nothing quite as dramatic. Um, but you know, if we're wanting to work out whether this is the beginning of a slow death by thousand cuts type equity market, then again, we've got to look at the rebound. And so far um, at the peaks today, now obviously we're recording this at the end of the European close, but we had reached and we did this yesterday as well. We'd reached 50% retracement of the September sell-off. 62% retracement, I think, is 34.42 on the S&P and something like 11,776 or something on the NASDAQ. And the way I look at this is that if we fail to breach those levels, then you can probably start playing from the short side with very tight stops. Um, because what you want to do is think about this, You know, even if you're a long-term kind of trade or investor wanting to reduce your positions, you, you watch these, if you're trying to reduce your positions, you watch these, and if they fail, if we get to them and fail, or if we fail here at 50% and start rolling over, you maybe think about lightening up. If you're a trader, you use those levels. But if we go through 62%, and this is what we said back in, in March, April, it's like, okay, well, now we probably do go to the all-time highs. There's nothing certain in this, and I have seen so many times in the world of QE and central bank intervention that what looked like great classic bear market setups get absolutely steamrolled by this inundation of effectively liquidity, either implied or explicit. So they're a framework. And we've hit 50% rebound. We can still go to 62. When you look in Europe, outside of the DAX, DAX is um, a total, effectively total return. It has dividends included. But if you look at things like the IBEX, the FTSE, 
even the Eurostox, the CAC, they've got to 50 to 62% retracements and spent three months going sideways and rolling over now. The rest of the world pretty much is still playing the bear market trend. It's only in the US and those two indices and on your thing before. Um, in the lows of last week, the S&P was back to flat. If you took the five biggest stocks out, it was still down 10% year, year to date. It's five stocks. It's seven stocks. That's the story. That's what's driving that US outperformance. But the rest of the global equity market, apart from one or two bright spots, is still in a kind of bear market formation with probably here the risk slightly now skewed to downside rather than upside. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I mean, you know, in the context of where we started this conversation in terms of the SPAC ETFs, one thing that you could say, I'll, I'll make a statement, you tell me how true you think that this is, uh, that all of the liquidity towards reflation hasn't really reflated the economies as much as we would like, and instead it's inflated asset prices, in particular concentrated in specific markets uh, in the U.S., in speculative parts of the U.S. and in the large cap U.S. technology uh, shares. If you look on a broader perspective, actually, we're still in a muddle through scenario and we have been the entire time. It's been a terrible distribution of capital, basically. I mean, capital is not really the right word because that sort of has this connotation of innovation, of productivity. But it's been a really terrible distribution of money from central banks or in, on the fiscal side because it's really not got through to the right parts of the economy. And you can see this with you know, simple things like, um, you know, who is it who works from home? It's the wealthy. 71% of all those who earn 150 to 200,000 in the US have been working remotely and continue to do so. 50% of those earning over 100,000 have been able to work remotely. It's been the other end that's been absolutely destroyed by this and are, you know, should be working or need to be working, not remotely, but locally. Um, and they have been missing out. The money that's been out there is not directed into the right areas. And as, I, as we can see, it has massively benefited the concentration story within equities, which is a valid story. It was going to happen over 10 years, but it's happened over, well, it will happen over a few months now. But it's not really got into something where you'll say that in five years' time, my expectation for global economies is one of renewed growth, because this money that's going through the system is still supporting incomes. It's not creating new jobs. It's not shifting or helping to shift those without jobs from areas where those jobs are never going to come back to areas where we might see new growth. And that's what it needs to do. And unfortunately, that needs a bit of pain. It needs a hollowing out. Instead, what is another, another um, buzzword is zombification. We're getting the zombification of the companies that you need to see wiped, you know, I hate to say it, but you need to see them wiped out in a way. And then quickly um, regenerated. And, you know, it's a bit like what happened in the UK is that in the early 80s, there was there was this the, the, the mining, you know, the mining um, sector of, this, of the UK was very, very inefficient, was basically being subsidized by all UK taxpayers. And there was a massive social upheaval. Eventually, unfortunately, the mining communities declined. Uh, most of them disappeared completely. But in many of these areas, they were rejuvenated and regenerated. Now, the communities were lost but jobs regenerated into completely new businesses. That's a sort of pain, unfortunately, that, that no process is smooth. You always have destruction to have creation. And, and you, know, you don't allow the destruction. 
Let me say, as you say that, the first thing that comes to mind was, I think it was two days ago, two or three days ago, Disney announced that they were going to let go of 28,000 workers. And I've tweeted this out. And someone uh, responded. They said, you know, I wonder how Disney feels uh, with the airlines getting, you know, massive bailouts. The fact that, you know, these guys are hurting. Uh, they didn't get a bailout and they're hurting so much they have to uh, get rid of 28,000 workers. I mean, to me, that speaks to what you're talking about. This like allocation of resources, zombification. You know, we're giving money to certain sectors. The places that aren't getting the money, they have to, you know, let the chips fall where they may. And that's leading to more job loss. I mean, the way I look at it is that, you know, I think we'll end up, once, once we're through this, I think we'll end up, you know, on the pleasure side, we'll bounce back. So, you know, the Disney's of the world, we will end up going back to, you know, these attractions. We will end up flying again and we will fly to resorts. We will go on holiday. But we all know, I think, we all know that there's been a profound and permanent change to how we do business travel because we've been, a lot of people have been very, very successful over Zoom. It will come back, but not in the same way. But you want to support those things where you know that, you know, leisure, our leisure, happiness, the things that keep us happy, those sorts of things that do need support because those are the things that I'm going to go back to. But I don't feel the need that I need to get on a plane to travel halfway across the world for a two-hour meeting anymore. So that's that's why I think you know the targeting has been wrong. Those that got hurt very early on, some of them are not going to come back in in the way that we knew them prior to February of this year. Some of them, I'm fairly confident and I'm optimistic, will, but they've often not received the support that they need. Right. Yeah, I agree with you 100 percent. Uh, you know, going back to the market side of things, uh, I know that you were looking at uh, what's going on in terms of the positioning for NASDAQ futures, that there's a short out there right now. Uh, can you tell me whether that is a, um, uh, you know, a, a fundamental problem, uh, you know, in terms of negativity towards the market or how are you thinking about that? I think it's not. I think that this is a build-up, and it's the non-commercial, which is speculative, sort of short. So it's kind of you know fast money short have absolutely exploded in terms of increasing shorts to a level that's you know, wipes the floor clean over the last five years. You've got to go back to the mid two thousands, and there these shorts built up over time, and they stayed short for a long period. But the other things to look at are things like the shares outstanding on the Qs, the triple Qs of the ETF, and they've been going higher and higher. They're nowhere near where they were, but they're at a, a couple of year highs. And they're the perfect mirror image of the S&P, the Spider ETF, which has been going down slightly. So I think there's some switching going on there. But what I think is happening here is that hedge funds have been very late to this party. Retail drove this party and have so far been successful. And I think the hedge funds have gone, Christ, you know, this is actually maybe a real, a real trend or certainly a trend that we can get involved in. So I think that my guess is what happened. What's happening here is that these futures are shorts against some consolidated stock positions, where you go out and you pick those one or two really, really big stocks, and then you you put a um, effectively a market neutral um, stock out performance versus the index because the index is is liquid and easy to do, because you just don't see that extreme in any other part. It's not like people are being short the S and P. Um, in fact, the S and P's just gone marginally long, um, and as I say, the, the queues are not there. We've seen people buying into the lows with triple levered plays. Um, so I think that's what it is. It doesn't mean that we can't have a squeeze based on that, but the chances are if we get a squeeze, it could be one that people are happy with because they're long the stocks that would be driving the squeeze and they're short the futures, which should underperform if it's those four or five stocks or one or two of those stocks driving the move. So that's what I think it is. But again, one to watch because it is a very, very extreme move in that short position. 
Yeah, I think that's 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 a quality uh, analysis there, Roger. Um, uh, let's let's finish this off with one last uh, thought uh, with regard to uh, treasuries. You were talking about um, the fact that treasuries are going nowhere. So you know, commodities uh, they're 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 having their asses handed to them. Treasuries, you know. When, even if you look at the ten-year, the the yield isn't going anywhere. So I think this gets into the conversation about the pension funds in terms of uh, two and five-year bonds, the belly of the curve. You know, how are you going? How are you going to survive as a pension fund with what's going on right now in terms of the yield that pension funds are getting because they're heavily invested in the fixed income market. It, it's a disaster. I mean, it's unfortunately, because, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my pension fund and it starts coming to me not too many years time from now. And and it's pretty horrific because, again, if you think about the pension fund industry outside of the U.S., they're not concentrated into U.S. equities and they're certainly not concentrated into the seven that have been driving it. So my pension, uh, well, I've got my one where I'm discretionary side of it, but a lot of U.K. pensions will be heavily invested in the U.K. equity market, which is not recovered in the same way that the US equity market is recovered. So they've lost out over this year quite significantly. Then you go into yields and yields have collapsed and we've been flatlining on the two year and the five year in the US, um, around about 20 to 30 basis points. Um, the 10 year, as you say, is around about 70 basis points. And I think this is here to stay. When you look at the bond volatility index move, it's at an all time low. And if the Fed says, well, we're gonna be on hold until 2023, that locks that front end to the belly of the curve. We're seeing a little bit of movement 10-year, 30-year, because there's this inflation expectation coming through. But if it goes too far, given the level of debts that we've got, they'll come in with yield curve control and they'll cap those yields, which is why that nominal versus real story is good for gold. But then the other part of it is that we've seen a massive collapse in dividends. So $250 billion has been wiped off global dividends so far this year. And they're back to levels. The worst case scenario is we might be back to levels of 2013. So dividend yields down. Bond yields, you're getting nothing. On the equity front, you've got the buybacks getting hurt. And so we've had some pension funds saying, we're going to buy the equity dip and we're going to use leverage, which means everyone is going all in onto what is already a, an overly um, crowded trade, which has now got a layer of retail on it in the US as well. That makes the fund management industry too big to fail, which is what we saw in March when we saw, after the initial economic shock, we saw the deleveraging shock, which is one of the 23rd of March. The Fed came in with what it had to come in with to settle down the, the Treasury market. But that's the problem we're in. They're going to have to take more and more risk in order to achieve 6 or 7% annual returns, given that there's income across the board has been decimated outside of the US, where you're not concentrated in US markets, you're not concentrated in the big seven me mega cap tech. It's a real disaster for all investors. Yeah, I, I hate to leave it there because <laughs> that's a really ominous note. But I mean, we've been talking about the pension crisis for a long, the retirement crisis for a long time. So uh, really great insights today, Roger. Great talking to you. Good to speak to you as well, Ed, and thanks for having me back. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads.
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.